guys, welcome back to our podcast, Little Brains, Big Topics. Uh, thank you for tuning in again, if you are tuning in again. Um, today we are talking about vaccination with regards to coronavirus once again. Um, we felt like it was quite a big topic, right? And we wanted to talk about more elements of it because we felt like in the previous podcast, we didn't really get to touch upon vaccination, which is such a big topic right now. If you look at the media, everyone's saying, you know, we need a vaccine in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months to get things back to normal. Anything to add, Namati? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I think we need to be honest with our audience about what happened. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what we're all about, right? We, we <laughs> okay, yeah, the, there's a reason we sound so down. <laughs> Basically, guys, we, we filmed an introduction, but the, <laughs> we realized we hadn't filmed it. <laughs> so this is like the our third take at it. <laughs> on the Matsy's fault. <laughs> it, it was my fault. Okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna go through my points very quickly that it's I a... had on the sheet in front of me. Yeah, it's all good. Okay, so one of the things I learned from the from the podcast was um, the reason we did the lockdown, it wasn't to prevent, like it, it wasn't to stop the spread of corona, it was just to slow it down so the healthcare system can cope with it. So the number of people going in doesn't exceed the number of people coming out so mm -hmm. that's that's one of the things that i i learned about i didn't know about yeah epidemics <laughs> epidemics and power okay this is what, what i told the chat I, I was having a, a bit of brain failure but essentially uh, yeah so currently in america i think they've made it free uh, if you have corona they'll treat you for free but if you have cancer, you're dying. They say, "Oh, you can die." If you don't have healthcare, you say, "Oh, you, you can health insurance." They say, "Oh, you can die." So that's they know free market health insurance. Uh, free market healthcare. It's a bad idea. I'm bad, just a terrible idea. Shout mm. out to NHS. NHS. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how long we can shout out NHS, <laughs> but hopefully for a good few more years. <laughs> yeah, a few a few more Thursdays maybe. <laughs> <laughs> a few more claps. <laughs> yeah, a few more claps. Um, but yeah, essentially. My my the point I was making that the reason the reason uh, uh, that we're you know we're fighting off uh, Corona it's not necessarily to help to help people recover it's a lot to do because of the fact that it's it, it can harm powerful people by it continuing the way it's continuing right now mm. that was one of my points. Yeah, if you look at it, like, just to add to that, like, if you look at the detrimental effect it's had on the economy, yeah, exactly. stocks, like, two, uh, two months ago, and it was a really bad idea because everything's just plummeted. And yep. they're saying so many people are going to be unemployed as a fallout from all of this coronavirus stuff. So it is really worrying. And that's why people are keen to get back to work as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. And as you'll see in, in the interview, we'll touch on economy as well and how that, that will impact how it will go forward in the future yeah um, a lot of interest all right yeah so guys um so sh shall we shall we uh, uh, have we told who our guest is no we have not told who our guest is so we'll do that now go for it they were interviewing professor paul allen offit and if his name sounds familiar it's because he's quite a big deal in the vaccination industry so 
Professor Offit, he's an American pediatrician and he specializes in infectious disease, vaccines, immunology and virology. Uh, but really importantly, he's the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. Um, so for those of you who don't know, rotavirus, it's one of the leading viral causes of diarrhea in young children. And he co-invented the vaccination against it. So as a result, probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives of young children across the world, which is quite substantial. Um, he's currently working as a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he also in the past worked on the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, on the advisory committee, which is also very, very impressive. So he's got a great CV. Um, he's also written some books. Uh, interestingly and most noteworthy is probably his stance on the anti-vax movement. So he's a big supporter of, well, he's a big the opposite of a supporter. He's not supporting the anti-vax movement. He debunks the anti-vax movement. The biggest opposer. There we go. Opposer of the anti-vax movement. That's the one. So he's received lots of hate mail and death threats because he's kind of been debunking, you know, this big movement we have against, uh, this big movement we have on anti-vaccination, especially in America. There's so many people who choose not to vaccinate their children. They say vaccination's not for me. Originated from Britain though. Andrew Wakefield. Yeah, Andrew Wakefield. Oh, the study. Yeah. So there was a study that linked the MMR vaccine to autism. Very poor correlation. It shouldn't have been published, but it was. And as a result of that, you know, conspiracy theorists in America, in the UK, all kicked off and they started saying, we're not going to get vaccinated. We're not going to get our children vaccinated. Uh, but Professor Offit, you know, he's a big, big opposer to that. He wrote a book, The Anti-Vax Movement. Um, so very, very interesting. And we talk about that a bit later on as well, how the anti-vax movement might influence the fight against coronavirus. Because even if a vaccine is made to achieve, you know, any usefulness from it, you need a certain proportion of the population to get vaccinated. And if you've got all these people, uh, I think a study from the independent said it was one in 10, one in 10 people in America are anti-vaccination for their children. I don't know how big the sample size was, but that's quite substantial and it could influence the effect that mass vaccination programs are going to have. Uh, so it is quite worrying. Mm. Yeah. And uh, a, a couple of, uh, and yeah, a couple of points we, we made in the, in the previous versions, that's just to, yeah, so <laughs> it took, it took Paul uh, Offit 26 years to, to, to finish making of the, um, yeah, rotavirus vaccine, mm -hmm. which is a long time if you think about it. And uh, yeah, uh, I was thinking he's probably, he's, he's probably saved, saved the most lives out of anyone we've talked to in our lives. If you think about it. That's crazy. That's actually I, I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> it's true. What a superhero. Very Ooh, impressive. It, it's mad. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and we we go we 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 get political at the end. By, by the way, guys, if, if you're into politics, watch out, watch out till the end. <laughs> a lot of politics to come. A lot. a lot of politics to come. And yeah, hope you hope you guys enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the enjoy. Yeah, my tongue isn't isn't working anymore. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> get some sleep. Is yeah, key. yeah. We need we need me and Ashad desperately need some sleep. We're quite sleep deprived. It's very important to stick to your natural circadian rhythm. Yes. You can wake with the sun, but we don't really tend to do that at this age. Not many of us do, to be honest. Especially in the lockdown where we don't have any routines and we just, mm. we get to decide what time to, to sleep, what time to wake up. Yeah. 
is not the best way to be. But that's a topic for another day. It would actually it's it's our next it's our our next episode. Shall we? Do we tell them what it's about? Right, it's about isolation. Mm-hmm. Watch out! Stay tuned, guys. We'll, we'll be talking about isolation. Yeah, we will. But okay. for now, anyway, without further ado, let's get on to the interview. And here is Professor Paul Offit. Let's go, guys. Thanks again, Professor Offit. So just to begin with then, would you mind introducing yourself and just kind of telling us about some of the projects you're currently involved in with regards to coronavirus? Sure. So um, my name is Paul Offit. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of vaccinology at uh, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Um, I'm trained in pediatrics, but my career, my professional career has mostly been involved in um, being part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that essentially developed the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. That was a 26-year effort. Um, currently, what I'm doing, I guess, regarding COVID-19 is I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee. I'm also part of a, um, a team at NIH that's doing what it can to try and accelerate vaccine development. Ooh. Sounds very interesting. Um, so yeah, we want to ask a lot more about kind of the stuff you're doing with vaccines um, and specifically with, with with regards to Corona, obviously. But before we do, we have some kind of generic questions as well that we want to ask. So yeah. I'll hand it over to Mohammed to ask some of those initially. Yeah, there is, uh, so there is a, like, the sort of our audience are broad range of people from all. So we want to like sort of start off from the, from the basics. So could you tell us what is a vaccine and what are uh, different types of vaccines that we have? Okay, so the purpose of a vaccine is to induce an immune response um, similar to natural infection without having to pay the price of natural infection, which can be brutal, like suffering, hospitalization, permanent harm, death. So the goal is to get the immunity without paying the price. Mm-hmm. There are different, a number of different strategies for how to do that. In the world of viruses, like COVID-19 is a virus, you can take the virus and kill it, which is what the way that the polio vaccine is made. That's the way the rabies vaccine is made. Um, you can take a virus and weaken it, which is the way the measles vaccine is made, the mumps vaccine, the German measles vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine are all weakened live viruses. You can take part of the virus, in this case it would be the surface protein of the virus, because that's the protein that allows the virus to attach to cells and infect cells. So if you can keep that protein, if you can neutralize that protein, then the virus can't attach. That's the way that the hepatitis B vaccine is made. That's the way the human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine is made. You can take a, um, a so-called vectored approach, which is to say you take a sort of weakened virus into which you then clone the gene that you're interested in, in this case codes for that surface protein, which is the way the Ebola vaccine is made and the way the current dengue vaccine is made. Or you can try a genetic approach for which there are no current vaccines. So you can take messenger RNA, which is then translated to this protein that you're interested in, or you can take DNA which is then transcribed to, to messenger RNA, which is then translated to a protein, all of which is sort of the same thing as, as hepatitis B or HPV vaccines. It's a single protein vaccine, essentially, just delivered by a different route. So those are really the five strategies. Hmm. That's very interesting. So with regards to those strategies then, what's kind of the, the different stage that you have in developing the vaccine for a given disease? Right. Um, well, just to give this give this a heads up, I mean, it did take us 26 years for us to make the rotavirus vaccine, and that's typical. 
I'd say a 20 to 25 year program is typical. So when um, Dr. Fauci and others stand up in front of the American public and say, we're hoping to make this in 12 to 18 months, that's amazingly, amazingly fast. Because here's the way that you do it. First, you have to decide what of those five approaches you want to try. Um, you know, because one may work better than the other. So you have, we're not even at the point where we have that approach yet. I mean, we just recently found out about this virus a few months ago. So we just ha now have the virus in hand. Once you decide on what approach you're going to use, then you try and do initially, hopefully, animal model studies where you have an animal like a mouse or a rat. You infect it with coronavirus, this COVID-19, and then hopefully the animal gets pneumonia, say. Oh. So now you have an animal model to study whether or not your vaccine idea works. So you give the you give the animal uh, model your vaccine, and then you challenge it later with this with the virus that will cause pneumonia. And if it prevents pneumonia, then you can say, okay, it looks like my proof of concept works. That yeah. takes usually years, just to put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. Does the animal model work? Usually takes years. Mm -hmm. You can you can skip that if you wanted. Although I personally think you should never skip the animal model approach, but um, something we did. But uh, then you go to sort of so-called phase one, phase two trials, which is you do sort of progressively larger safety and immunogenicity trials. So you give your vaccine, you want to make sure it's safe. That's the key thing, and then you want to see what kind of immune response it evokes. But you don't know whether that immune response really is protective. You don't know that. You can see that they have an immune response, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that people are protected against disease. Mm -hmm. So then you ultimately have to do a big efficacy trial, safety efficacy trial, so-called phase three trial. Um, for our vaccine, that was 70,000 infants. Um, for another rotavirus vaccine, that was 60,000 infants. For the human papillomavirus vaccine, that was 30,000 uh, people, mostly women, as, as part of a seven-year clinical trial. Mm -hmm. um, once you've done that, assuming it works, and I imagine it would be done in healthcare workers because they're the ones most likely to confront this virus, you have to hope that there's, well, hope is maybe not the right word, but you, you would have to um, uh, hope that there's enough <laughs> disease out there that you don't have to do tens of thousands of people. Because if there's not a lot of disease out there, you know, you have to have enough people on both sides so that you can see that, say, there's 17 cases of disease in this group, but no cases of disease in this group. Therefore, I can say that it works. But there has to be a lot of cases out there. I mean, right now, less than 2% of the United States population is infected. So you have to hope there's more disease out there that you can see whether your trial works. Now you've got something you think can work. You have to scale it up. Uh, it has. You have to make sure you have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial. You have to do real-time stability studies. And scale up itself is hard. I mean, you you know, you're making vaccine here for tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, and so you know, because this vaccine would be given to mostly the healthy people um, who would not normally die from this virus. I mean, the virus tends to really kill people who are over 65 who um, have other health problems. You better make sure it's as safe as you can make sure, as you, you can tell, before you give it to millions of people. So I think optimistically, honestly, if everything worked perfectly for this vaccine, I think it could be available in five years. The notion that it could be available in a year and a half or two years is just remarkable to me. I, I guess we'll see how it plays out, but it is remarkable. The fastest vaccine ever developed was the mumps vaccine. Mm. which was, um, they, they had the virus in 1963. That was a commercial product in 1967, four years. And that was in the 1960s, before the Food and Drug Administration had much higher regulatory burdens. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think it's wow. mechanics as 
think our president Trump said, hopefully we'll get a vaccine in two months. I don't know what planet he was living on when he said that, but that's what he said. We, we will get to <laughs> Trump in, in our future questions. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot to ask about Donald Trump's actions yeah. in recent. <laughs> so I, so my, so this question is, is a bit, is a bit like, is a bit dumb question, but I, I felt like I need to ask it. So since you, so since you co-invented the uh, rotavirus vaccine, is there a eureka moment when you're developing a vaccine? No, 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 no. no. It's more like sort of two steps forward, one step back. Step back. It's sort oh, of wow. moments of anxiety interspersed with moments of boredom. That's pretty much the way science works. I mean, <laughs> you go from sort of one flawed experiment to the next with unabashed enthusiasm. Um, no, it, it, I mean, nature gives it up itself up to you very slowly. I mean, you think you have it, you think you're good, and then something pops up that isn't exactly what you expected. And so you go, it's back to the drawing board. And I, that happens over and over and over again. Um, you have to be a real optimist to be a scientist because there's a lot of failure in, in, uh, in the process. Mm. So, you, you know, it's, it's uh, and, and you don't really think you're making a vaccine. I mean, we were just trying to understand the virus. I mean, uh, the first paragraph of our grants always said, bad disease, need to make a vaccine. But you never really think you're making one. You're just trying to figure this all out. And then you create strains that you think could be a vaccine. But even then, you don't think you're making a vaccine. Then you go to a pharmaceutical company and say, hey, would you like to try and see if you can make this a vaccine? Because they're the only ones that have the resources and expertise to do that. I mean, that... That trial that I told you, the phase three trial for us, which was, you know, a 70,000 child prospective placebo controlled four year, 11 country trial, that was a $350 million study as a single clinical trial. The whole program was maybe 1.2 to $1.5 billion. And that was, you know, one program by one company. This would be much more expensive. Not because we knew a lot more going into to our program than, than this program does. Mm. The good news is there's a lot of interest in making a vaccine. There's more than 40 company, companies across the globe that are interested in doing this. So there'll sort of be a tremendous effort for doing it. My only concern in this is there's such panic out there. I mean, such terror about this virus that we may feel like we should cut corners to get to the, to the prize. And that's never a good thing. Yeah, I can imagine that could not end so well. If you are cutting the corners and taking out the safety measures, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, I think I think I'll ask one of the questions I, I plan to ask uh, in, in later. I'll ask it now because it relates nicely. So, so yeah, as you said, it takes around you said how, around twenty years to, to develop a vaccine. Um, so, are you? So, how worried are you about the fact that people are saying? it will be able to do it in a year or 18 months. Do you think they're just, they're just being too optimistic or do you think they will try to, they won't do like the, all the stages properly, which will have its own consequences? Well, I mean, sure. Yes, I do worry about that. I mean, I'm on the FDA's vaccine, FDA's vaccine advisory panel. I mean, technically that I, I, I can't imagine this vaccine would be sold to the general public without FDA licensure. Right. I mean, I'm on the licensing committee, so hopefully we'll all get a chance to look at it before licensure, and we either recommend it or don't recommend it uh, based on safety and efficacy data. So hopefully they won't try and bypass the FDA. It's possible they can do that. There's something called the Emergency Use Authorization Act where you can bypass the FDA. I, I hope we don't do that, but 
we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, sure, I worry that things could be done that quickly. It's just not possible to do it that quickly. I honestly don't see how it is possible to do it that quickly and know that you have a product that is clearly safe and clearly effective. I, I don't see how you can do that in a year and a half. Mm. You don't even know what strategy you're going to use yet. Wow. And that's what the newspapers don't tell you, by the way. Most research I've done, like when they talk to the, like their estimates, they don't owe, uh, they don't uh, go more than two years. Like when 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 I read papers. Uh, so, could you tell us about um, coronavirus in general um, and what makes SARS-CoV-2 type, which is what's causing the current pandemic? so dangerous as opposed to other strands? Okay, so in the early 1960s, human coronaviruses were first identified. In the United States, there's four strains that circulate of human coronavirus. And every year, I would say 15 to 20% of the respiratory illnesses that come into our hospital are, are caused by one of these or, or other of these human coronavirus strains. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, uh, there, there emerged from Southeast Asia, SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. That was 50% bat coronavirus. I mean, the Chinese have a taste for bats. They drink bat soup, they drink bat tea, they eat fried bats. So there's a connection between animals and or bats and humans in China. And so that virus emerged. Now, it caused uh, uh, worldwide. It caused 8,000 cases and about 800 deaths at a 10% mortality rate. But if you got SARS, you were sick. So it was very easy to tell who was infected and who wasn't. Then emerging from Saudi Arabia was MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, another novel coronavirus, another coronavirus nobody had ever seen before. That was partly a camel coronavirus because mm. mammals have their own sort of strands of coronavirus. That caused about 2,500 cases in the world and 1,000 deaths. Those were both one and done. They were one-year phenomena, then they were done, and they never came back. Even though certainly most of the world's population is still susceptible to both of those viruses, they came and went. Then came this virus, which so far has caused, you know, uh, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the world. And, and you know, in the United States, this, this as of this morning, about 32,000 deaths. And UK also is, we're all suffering, all, every country suffering. This virus is different in that 80% um, of the people who are infected either have no symptoms or very mild symptoms. That wasn't true of either SARS or MERS. So this is much more easily transmitted. You can come in contact with someone who's not, who has no symptoms but is still shedding the virus and therefore can still be contagious to you. That's what makes it so frightening. I think that's why people are so scared. I mean, smallpox was a frightening disease, but there was no such thing as asymptomatic smallpox. Everybody who had smallpox was sick, and you could tell they were sick because they had you know, the, the uh, blisters on their face. So you knew who was sick. Um, this virus, it's like it's like AIDS in a sense. I mean, the, the reaction to it is the same as AIDS. When AIDS sort of came into this country in the early 1980s, nobody knew what caused it. Nobody knew how you caught it. And so everybody was frightened. They were scared to pick up a piece of food in the grocery store. And, and that's what this is like. I mean, because it clearly there is fomite spread, meaning, you know, that you need to, you're told to constantly wash your hands because you may touch a handrail or an ATM machine or something else where that virus is living. That's what make, makes people so scared. It's just, uh, mm -hmm. they're not sure how they might get it or that they're not quite sure how to avoid it. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So kind of tied into that then, I wanted to ask, um, with regards to these viruses and, you know, there's different mutant forms of coronavirus, which can, they have this potential to cause more pandemics. Is it possible within a lab to kind of 
preempt the production of, you know, a mutant form of a virus and vaccinate against it? Is that something that is possible? Well, so so the the this is a this is a, a novel virus. It, it came up in, in China. It was unexpected, as SARS and MERS were unexpected. But I think you're you're right. I think we're certainly this is not the last of this. But you know, it's often true that the viruses or bacteria we're infected with come from animals. There are, are adaptations from animals. I mean, tuberculosis, for example, really came initially from cows. I mean, it's sort of a mutant sort of tuberculosis. Got the AIDS, you know, which we just talked about, human immunodeficiency virus, was originally simian immunodeficiency virus that probably to some hunter, you know, killing a, a monkey in the Cameroons, you know, cut himself, and then he entered his blood. So ultimately, that virus mutated from simian immunodeficiency virus to human immunodeficiency virus, rotaviruses or animal viruses. So I think, you know, we, we're constantly sort of getting these, these viruses that mute spill over essentially from animals. So is it predictable? Not so predictable. What bothers me about this though is that China could have certainly been a better actor here. I mean, we shouldn't have had to, to depend on a whistleblower to tell us that there was suddenly a virus spreading through Wuhan that was killing people. I mean, that should have been very made quick, quickly available to everyone so that we could begin to prepare. I mean, our country was certainly knew about the, the serious nature of this by mid-January, and we still were very slow to react. Was it six six weeks, the period China didn't reveal that? Was it six weeks too late when they first initially said it? It's hard to know. Oh. I mean, they are a little bit of a black box. I'm, I'm not sure exactly when those first cases were. I mean, you know, we had to depend on the whistleblower to tell us things were, were bad. I, that virus could have started as early as October before right. and, that. And are you wow. surprised that sort of the counterintelligence agencies didn't find out about it? So, or they didn't warn, because I think there was reports that they, they were trying to warn the, the White House beforehand. Uh, well, they, they first, they, the intelligence agency first warned the White House around December, um, and then they went to Congress in, by mid-January and said, this is going to be a problem. This is a pandemic in the making. React. And uh, we still were slow to react. Mm. So if it had all come out earlier, do you think it could have been contained in a similar way to MERS or SARS? Or do you think just the asymptomatic nature of it would have led to it inevitably becoming a pandemic? Yeah, it, it, it's once the virus came in the country, you know, you were in trouble. Once there was community spread from one person to the next, you were in trouble. Now the, now the, the Pandora's box had been opened and you were in trouble. I mean, you could have certainly lessened the burden by really restricting travel from Asia when this was a problem and restricting travel from Europe when clearly this was a problem in France and Spain and Italy. We were slow to do that. I think that's why New York got hit so hard. I think that people came into, from those three countries I just mentioned, came in from to LaGuardia or JFK and spread that virus very quickly to, to the New York population. And they were overwhelmed. I mean, half the deaths in this country are from, uh, from New York City and New York State. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Um, so um, my, my next question was sort of about, what, because, uh, so as a... As someone who's electronics engineer, I don't know much about much about viruses. So I was wondering, like, if you look at a, a virus under a microscope, will you be able to tell how it's going to manifest itself inside the human body? No. Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the sequence of the virus, which we know, we know the sequence of this virus. That doesn't tell you how it's going to manifest itself in the human body either. You just have to watch to see. Right. <laughs> Fair um, so you can't really sort of, you know, people are like 
conspiracy theory people are saying, oh, like it, it was created in the lab. You can't really, you can't really say, okay, I want to, I, I want to make a virus that does that. You can't really make it, right? If you're making a new virus. Yeah, this is a novel virus. So I, can't, I mean, I think what you could do is you could try and figure out a way to take smallpox and then make it so that it's transmitted by the respiratory route, you know, or easily, mm -hmm. well, it's transmitted, but make it much more easily, make it more like measles. You, you probably could, which is much more contagious. We could take a virus like rabies, for example, which is only, you know, really contracted by the bite of an animal and try and make that spread by the respiratory route. That would be bad, which was really the movie Contagion. That, that was that movie. No, <laughs> the movie Contagion, but like a rabies-like virus that was transmitted by the yeah. respiratory route, that's a problem because this is like a universally fatal mm. disease. Mm. That's interesting. Um, and do we... So I read some some um, Guardian articles I read was saying that we don't exactly know uh, what's, what happens inside a person when they get corona. So so if, I I read this world called cyto what was it cyto cyto cytokine 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 yeah what, what was it cytokine storm yeah oh yeah so how does that work like what's hap what's happening what happens inside the person once they get infected with corona yeah so usually the virus reproduces itself in the upper respiratory tract then it spreads down to the lower respiratory tract the lungs where it can cause a viral pneumonia. Right. Um, sometimes, in addition to just the viral pneumonia, that the virus destroys cells, mm -hmm. that the virus induces this kind of aberrant immune response. So cytokines are part of your immune response. Probably the principal cytokine associated with this syndrome, uh, otherwise known as acute respiratory syndrome or uh, respiratory disease, ARDS or acute respiratory disease syndrome or uh, cytokine storm, is a, 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 a cytokine called interleukin-6. So yeah, I mean, that happens. It's interesting that... Um, when you die from, from viral or bacterial infections, it's usually your, your immune system that kills you. Um, mm. Not so much the virus or bacteria per se, it's your immune response to the virus or bacteria. Begging the question, why would your immune system kill you? And I think probably the, the sort of teleological reason is that you're given a chance to get better from your infection. And if you don't, then you're basically culled from the herd. So sort of from, from a societal standpoint, because you're now shedding a lot of virus, excreting a lot of virus, it's better for the herd that you're taken out. So your body pretty much kills you. Your immune system kills you. And how, so if the, so how is it that in older people that's more likely? Because wouldn't they have like fewer uh, white, white blood cells? So I, I don't know, I'm just... Well, so so it's not it's not really the it's not the the uh, the, the kind of cells that make interleukin six are usually macrophages, sort of these oh. professional antigen presenting cells. So it's not it's oh, yeah. uh, that's it just happens to some people and doesn't happen to others. The good news is there's a monoclonal antibody directed against interleukin six called tocilizumab, so you can treat people often successfully with that mm. with cytokine storm. Mm. Mm. So the next thing I kind of wanted to ask you was. Um, Obviously, there is this big global push to try and produce a vaccine. And you said yourself that it would take up to five years realistically. Do you think that without a vaccine, there is a, there is a possibility of us getting back to normal day-to-day -day life? Or is the focus really on developing this vaccine as soon as possible? 
if we're waiting for a vaccine to get back to the routine, <laughs> we're going to be waiting for a while. I mean, that, that's yeah, it's it's I mean, Dr. Fauci, you know, who's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, said that we're not going to have any large-scale sporting events until there's a vaccine. Uh, what? I mean, first of all, I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. This is, this is painful. <laughs> I don't think uh, you get a refund, do you? Because it's like natural disaster, right? I, I would hope so. I mean, <laughs> the, you know, see, also, frankly, the players shouldn't be paid either, you know, if they're uh, not playing. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's your question, <laughs> 11, Asha. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask then. Um, do you think it's possible to totally er eradicate COVID-19 or will it become an endemic? Don't know. I think we'll learn as we go here. It's a I mean, the human coronaviruses are usually winter spring viruses. They go away in the summer. The reason is is they're spread by small droplet. That when the sun, when it gets more humid out, you know those small droplets tend to take on water and drop more quickly. So therefore, you become less contagious. I don't know whether that's going to happen with this virus. I mean, they, they, like in Greece, for example, they don't seem to be suffering as much as their northern neighbors. That's a good sign. Maybe it's because it's more humid and hotter in Greece. I hope that's it because we're about to enter summer here. Um, but that may not be true. I mean, this is a bad coronavirus. that's just made its debut in the human population. I don't think anybody really knows how it's going to act. Um, maybe it'll go through the summer. Maybe it'll be here next year and the year after and the year after. I, I, I tend to think it will fade over time, uh, much as, as SARS and MERS did. But again, we'll, we'll have to see. But if we're waiting for a vaccine to go back to work, yeah. that is painful. I, I think the goal, as I understood it, the way it was initially explained, was flatten the curve, right? <laughs> I mean, make sure you don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Make sure that, you know, we can take care of these patients and that we can take care of other patients who need acute or intensive care. Make sure you can do that. And we're there. We're already there. I mean, hospital discharges are already much greater than admissions. A lot of these ICUs are, are vacant. We mean, we're not doing elective surgery, so you also that also doesn't burden the ICU. We have plenty of ventilators. As far as I'm concerned, I think we can start going back to work, slowly going back to work. And maybe there will be a bump in cases and a bump in deaths. But if the goal is to have nobody else dying from COVID-19, then, then we should stay in, the, in our house for the next two to three years. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, every year influenza in this country kills 35, 40,000 people. When, when, once we started to, to shelter in place or lock down, whatever, the incidence of, of, of flu also dropped more quickly than it would have normally. So great. So let's mm -hmm. stay inside every, every winter and avoid the, the 35,000, 40,000 deaths from influenza. We can't do that. I mean, life is risk. Also, there's been fewer car accidents, people dying in car accidents because no one's driving. So but that's another reason to not go ever go outside. I mean, it, it's, we're going to at some point have to go back to work because now we're about to experience the second part of this major public health disaster, which is joblessness. We already have 22 million Americans that have applied for, for unemployment insurance, and those are the ones, one, who could figure out how to do it, and two, who could do it because, you know, it, there are a lot of people who are illegal, uh, have illegally entered this country, who work in this country, who can't apply for unemployment insurance. You're going to have 35 million Americans unemployed. At least that's 20% of the workforce. I mean, we are mimicking what happened in the Great Depression in the late 1920s. And with that level of joblessness comes homelessness and then all the things that come with homelessness, food insecurity, drug addiction, increased drug addiction, increased domestic violence, child abuse, suicides. That always That's round two. So I think we need to start thinking about how to get back to work to avoid the tragedy that's about to, that's the second tragedy that's about to come with this. Mm. Wow. And um, if if it 
in the case it becomes an endemic, will it? So will it be worse than the seasonal flu, or will it be just another thing we're watching out for, or will it be like unique, a uniquely disturbing fact of the world if it becomes an endemic? Um, if it becomes endemic, like flu, flu, so yeah. there's seasonal flu every year, yeah. which kills 35 or 40,000 people. I'd be surprised if this virus did that. I mean, it is a, the problem with flu is it's a moving target. I mean, that virus mutates so much from one year to the next, the natural infection or immunization the previous year doesn't, doesn't protect you the following year. Mm -hmm. This is not that virus. I mean, it right. wasn't SARS, it wasn't MERS. This is not a virus that, that mutates. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a single-stranded RNA virus, so it's always going to have some mutations, but it doesn't look like those mutations appear to either affect function or appear to make it so that a vaccine wouldn't be able to consistently work. I mean, there are other single-stranded RNA viruses that are stable enough, like measles or mumps or German measles. Those, those are single serotype viruses, so I think that would also be true here. Mm. Are you concerned about our ability to mass-produce the eventual corona vaccine and whether or not the distribution will be fair? And that's kind of assuming we'll be able to get it in the time frame that they're telling us, which you already don't agree we will, we will be able to. But do you think if we manage to, even if we manage to, like very optimistically, we manage to get it in 18 months, it's produced, it's, we got it. Do you think we'll be able to mass produce it on a global scale? And if so, will the will be will the distribution be fair? So, won't we like have the poorest countries who need it the most being the least likely to get it? Because all the rich well, countries. Yeah. yeah. The, the first question is: Will the are the poorest countries the ones who will need it the most? I mean, it depends on what the spread is of virus in those countries. I mean, I think that you you would distribute it. To the one, to the, the people who are, to the countries that are most suffering, two, to the people in those countries who are most likely to suffer, which is, you know, frontline responders like, you know, healthcare workers and medical transporters, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, it, it depends, and certainly people who are associated with nursing homes. And what's interesting about this virus is that, um, about, about, um, most of the, the, the deaths are really in those who are over 65 years of age who have other comorbidities like hyper, high blood pressure and, and type 2 diabetes and obesity. I mean, this, this virus, it's like as many as half the deaths occur in, in those groups. So mm. you know who, who this virus is. So that's not flu. I mean, flu, for example, in this, in this country of the 32,000 or so deaths, fewer than five deaths have been in children, whereas 155 children have died of influenza this year. So the tend to spare the young and the healthy. It's the older people who need to be protected, assuming that, you know, you think people as old as me should still be allowed to live. I think we should still be allowed to live. But, you know, but there was an old movie called Wild in the Streets. This is before your time. Max, Max Frost. This Take a look. It's Wild in the Streets. It's when sort of everybody over 30 had to be killed. This this, this new to you. I've heard something about this. It rings a bell. Was it basically I, an, a, an ageist Thanos? Yes, <laughs> <It> sounds like. <laughs> it's um, a, there was a song that was very popular. It was like, uh, "Nothing can change the shape of things to come," or something. Max Frost, I think, was the name of the guy. Take a look. My mind was thinking at the time I was, you know, in my my late teens, early twenties, so I wasn't worried then. But I'm worried now that that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we I think so. The, our next question is. Uh, 
So I'm not. So please do feel free to tell if you can't answer it. We're you know uh, we we don't want you to lo lose your job if that if that you know because <laughs> you're working there. So what do you think of Trump's decision to halt funding of the World Health Organization? Are, are you allowed to answer that? Yeah, sure. Oh, uh, we're, we're still firing, right? I'll come to Perfect. I think that. Um, it's wrong at so many levels. First of all, he, he chooses to try and find a scapegoat, right? Because he can never take blame on himself. He cannot take blame for the fact that we were very slow to develop testing or take blame for the fact that he already dissembled a pandemic preparedness plan that had been put in place in 2005 or take blame for the fact that he was slow really to allow uh, uh, people coming in from countries where this was, was problematic. Um, so, so he chooses to blame people. This is his defining characteristic finger pointing. So he says the World Health Organization failed in its responsibility to alert the world to what was going on. But the truth was, we certainly had information as early as mid-December that there was a problem and had credible information presented to Congress by mid-January. So that's wrong. Secondly, it's not like the World Health Organization only works on COVID. I mean, they work on malaria, they work on rotavirus, they work on a, a variety of illnesses that, that, that hurt and kill people in this world. And we have to, we are a player in the, we used to be a player in this world till we had this big America first theme, which is really just basically selfishness and not doing the part that we should be doing in this world. I think it's awful, awful. And I think, you know, in, the, in a better world, the, the other congressmen, senators would stand up and say how awful this was, but they don't do it. I mean, he acts like a king because he can, because we let him get away with it. Mm -hmm. It's annoying. And I, yeah, I bet he recently discovered he could do that. Like, I bet he just found out, like, as soon as he found out it was within his power to halt it, he just... He <laughs> <laughs> Stop now. <laughs> yeah, staying on the theme of kind of politics, um, I wanted to ask as well, uh, from what we understand, Professor, you're quite interested in the anti-vax movement, um, and you have a fascination with people who, you know, abstain from vaccinating their children, uh, and you've written a book, I believe, um, about the anti-vax movement. So we just want to understand a bit better. Why is it that so many people, and it seems like a lot of people in America especially, choose to, you know, abstain from being vaccinated themselves or getting their children vaccinated? What, what's kind of going through their head? Well, so I think there's two groups. Um, the most common group is what I would call sort of the vaccine-hesitant parent. They, um, you know, we ask parents in this country to give their children vaccines in the first few, few years of life that prevent 14 different diseases. That can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases that most people don't see using biological fluids most people don't understand. So I think it's not surprising that there's pushback. You know, people say, why do I need a polio vaccine? We haven't had polio in this country in decades. Why do I need a diphtheria vaccine? It's so uncommon or a tetanus vaccine. Why do I need those vaccines? And why do my kids have to get so many shots? So I think I mean, for people like me who experienced all these diseases, I mean, I was a child of the 50s. I had measles. I had mumps. I had germ measles. I had chicken pox. I had all those diseases. Wow. I remember what they felt like. I certainly grew up in medicine with a lot of these diseases. I mean, I was in the polio ward when I was five years old. I remember these diseases. I think, you know, most young parents, and frankly, most young doctors and nurses never grew up with these diseases. They don't see them today, so they're less powerful advocates. That's one group. I think the, the anti-vaccine activists, what I mean by anti-vaccine activists, are conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. They believe that the pharmaceutical companies yeah. control everything. They believe the government is in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry. They believe that the medical establishment is in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry. And that, um, 
and uh, and then every, they're always being lied to. So when you you know when you for example, I wrote a book called Autism's False Prophets, um, which basically just said that vaccines uh, don't cause autism. By the way, thank you for Andrew Wakefield. Really, thanks for sending him here. Andrew Wakefield was a, a British gastroenterological surgeon who came up with the notion that MMR vaccine caused autism, which created <laughs> England. And then, you know, so first, you guys, first it was the T tax, and now it's Andrew Wakefield. I mean, it's, it's all bad. Do but, you know how many people <laughs> he's responsible for killing that single article? Well, yeah, I think that article killed children. I absolutely think that's true. And in England, I mean, when, when, when that article was published, I mean, there were thousands of parents who chose not to give their, their children that vaccine. There were hundreds of children who were hospitalized. There were four children who died. Four children who died. I think you could argue that that, 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 that article killed children. And I blame not just Andrew Wakefield. I blame his co-authors. I blame the, the journal for publishing it. I blame the media who quickly jumped all over this, this article. And I think academia, academics were slow to react. To this, I think there's a lot of people to, to blame. By the way, just so you 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 love this, right? So, I I uh, had a book that came out two days ago by Harper Collins. It's actually also being published in England by Scribe. Is that a familiar, familiar name? But yeah. in any case, it, it's uh, it's called Overkill when modern medicine goes too far. Yes. So, see, I think it's smart to launch a book when there's not a, a single bookstore in America that's open. Don't you think that's, that's a good time? Yeah. And Amazon oh, is taking over. Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be all fine. <laughs> But yeah, kind of related to what you just said as well. Um, so you said that there's a group of people who um, they just conspiracy theorists, and I can imagine when you're that set in your mind about something being a conspiracy, it's very hard to change your perception on things. Do you think that in in the future, when the vaccine does come out, is that group of people substantial enough to kind of jeopardize the mass vaccination program with coronavirus, for example? It'd be, it'd be interesting to see. When I mean, were, were that were this virus still as potent then as it is now? Was it still? Was it? If it was still, people were scared to walk out of their house, scared to shake anybody's hand, scared to to come within six feet of anybody else because of, of fear of getting COVID nineteen. I'm sure they're scared of getting this virus as everybody else. Mm. Would they then choose to be vaccinated with the data that were available, which you know will be thousands of people, but not millions of people? Will they? Would they be? willing to get a vaccine we'll see just how serious they are about this mm. um my personal bias is i, I think they probably would i, I think their, their their problem really has to do with mandating vaccines they don't like to be forced to get a vaccine they always like to see this as an issue of choice although i think were they to make that with this vaccine to be available and and the, the the disease was still as bad as it now i think it would be a mandated vaccine I think people would say it's not your right to to catch or allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal illness. Sorry, you have to be vaccinated. I think that that would happen, which that's what would piss them off. Mm. And yeah, you know, and demographically speaking, are they more tend to be on right leaning people or left leaning pe people who are in the vaccine denial movement? Both. Uh, they, right. On the right side, it tends to be sort of the libertarian uh, mm. government off my back. Don't tell me what to do. The sort of you know Rand Paul argument right. here in the United States. On the left, it's this sort of crunchy granola, bib overall, all things natural. I don't want to be injected with a foreign substance crap. Right. So yeah, there's not politics to this. It's left and right. The same as like the anti-GMO people, I guess. The, the same. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I see. Um. So related to all of these, do you think there is a resurgence of science denialism in general, um, like flat earth society being a blatant example? Do you think that, and what, what, if, if yes, what do you think is causing it? 
Um, yes, is the short right. answer. I, I think I think we've always, at some level, been scientifically illiterate, but at least you know there was a certain um, respect for expertise and experience. Yeah. Um, that's changed. Um, I, I think the internet is part of it. That you know, you feel that you too can become an expert by simply googling the word vaccines. Mm. Um, and but that's not true of all things. I mean, I think, like for example, if you're about to have a gallbladder operation, I, I don't think you're going to you know go on the internet and look at how one does a gallbladder operation and then disagree with your surgeon about what you know his or her approach is. Um, Similarly, even with mechanics, I mean, you go take your car in because it needs to be repaired. I think you're not probably arguing with your mechanic about what the best way to do that is. Because yeah. What the hell do you? Um, but but that's not true for vaccines for whatever reason. I think I think it is. Do, do I think a scientific denialist? Yes, I think our president is a scientific denialist. I mean, he he said during one of the presidential debates, he thinks vaccines cause autism. I mean, our secretary of the Department of Education is a creationist. So is our vice president. Um, yeah. You know, I think you know. You now have an, an environmental protection agency, which was forced to take the phrase "climate change" off of their website. I mean, we're, we're, it's beyond scientific denialism. It's just it, it couldn't be worse. It, um, so I think it, when it is scientific denialism, then educating people doesn't help. Literacy, in theory, you can you can educate. You can, sort of the deficit model, but if people just declare their own truths, you're sort of stuck. You know, people feel that they're all experts that they can know just as much as you do by going onto the internet for 15 minutes. Mm. This is true. <laughs> this is very true. Wow. It's a side effect of internet in general, the same way smart people can gather smart... Well, not stupid people, but people with otherwise... Let's say, rare views can find each other and create cults and sort of... I, communities. Communities, yeah. yeah. Communities would be a better word. And advanced, you know, for example, if, if you decide to, you know, create a YouTube channel, you'll, your voice will be just as strong as someone, um, a random anti-vaccine person. So is, is that the, is that, that sort of because it's given everyone equal voice in some sense? That's what. Yeah, yeah they're the mouse that roared. I mean, they certainly make up, I'm sure, well less than 1% of the population in the United States, but they're the mouse that roared. And also, it's easier to find like minded people who have similar, you know, ill conceived notions on the internet. So you can, you know, whereas before it was been harder to do that. And you're right. I mean, in the old days when it was just sort of newspapers and radios, magazines, where they were much more responsible, there was actually sort of a journalistic standard. There, that is not, there is no journalistic standard on the internet. Yeah. There was a level of filter between the people and what gets published to the public. There was um, levels removed. So, would uh, would you like to tell us? Uh, so, so what day did you say uh, your new book is going to be published in the UK? I'm not sure. I know that I signed a contract with Scribe, um, Scribe. and so presumably soon. But you, yeah, I think you can probably still get it off the internet there. I mean, it's off if you can order it on Amazon. Right. Mm. Uh, would you like to? Um, would you like to tell us uh, what what themes you cover in the book? Sure. Uh, here's here's my. Oh dog. yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I, yes. <laughs> we, we go, we, we're going to put pictures of the book. We're going to put pictures on the screen as well for people. Links in the description. Everything. <laughs> um, so uh, so the book's called Overkill when modern medicine goes too far. It's um. It's sort of those situations in modern medicine where there's abundant scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway. So, for example, treating fever. 
you shouldn't treat fever. I mean, we all make fever. Everything that walks, crawls, swims, or flies on the face of this earth can make fever. Why? I mean, it's adaptive. It's part of our immune response. And the reason is, is your body works better, your immune system works better at a higher temperature. I mean, the, in the case of COVID-19, these cells, which make antibodies, work more efficiently at a higher temperature than, than normal body temperature. But you pay a metabolic price for that, which is why your body only revs up its immune system when it needs to. So, mm -hmm. so when you, there's study after study showing that when you treat fever, you can prolong and worsen illness. So don't treat fever. I mean, the Minister of Health in France steps up and says regarding COVID-19, don't use NSAIDs like ibuprofen, use acetaminophen, Tylenol, don't use your paracetamol, mm -hmm. don't use either is the answer. Because you need fever. Fever, fever helps your immune system work better. When you give fever, when you give anti-fever uh, medicines around vaccines, you you have a lower immune response to those vaccines. It's one of the stupidest things we do in medicine. Actually, is treating fever, but it's so culturally ingrained that I don't think this book is going to make everybody stop treating fever. I think that aspirin and Tylenol and ibuprofen are still going to sell well, even though I'm going to publish this book that says don't do it. <laughs> another example is don't finish the antibiotic course. Um, there's now abundant evidence and, and advisory panels now that are saying, you know, really treat till you're better. And, 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 you know, once you feel better, you can stop. This whole business of finishing the course, why do we do that? You don't, I mean, when you have asthma, you treat until you don't wheeze anymore. When you have pain, you treat till you don't have pain anymore. Why do you say treat 10 days for an ear infection when you know, when you know that your child is over two years of age and can tell you whether or not their ear hurts, who feels better? Stop the antibiotic. Now you can do that. And that, that's what the, these advisory panels are recommending. But somehow doctors just haven't gotten the message yet. That's quite interesting because even uh, in medical school, I'm at medical school in Leeds. Uh, I remember learning in our kind of in our in our course, we were taught like with antibiotics, take the full course because of fear of bacterial resistance and all of this. So is that is that not valid? It's no, it's not valid. It's exactly wrong. In other words, not shockingly, the longer you treat with an antibiotic, the more likely you are to develop resistance. I, it, that comes from the really? time when we first made antibiotics, like in the 40s and 50s, and the doses that were given were too low. So what ended up happening is you would treat, but it was with doses that weren't high enough or antibiotics that weren't broad enough, and then you would stop, and then the, the disease would come back because you had really effectively eliminated all the pathogenic bacteria. We're well beyond that. We can do that. So that's why these... Based on all these studies, advisory panels have changed. So, so get that book and bring it to your professors and say, I you know, here are all the studies that show that you're wrong. What are you teaching me? And they get a low grade. <laughs> I'm actually shocked. Like, I, I had no idea. <laughs> Absolutely our, no idea. Our, life, uh, our lives ha has been a lie. So for example, so uh, I, I, I've just recovered from a glandular fever recently. Um, and it took me like, it took me six. Infectious mono. Pardon? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Epstein Barr is the. <laughs> and there is no vaccine for it. So I'm looking forward to the, to the scientific developments on that front. But basically, I took a lot of ibuprofen in that time. And now I'm thinking, could it be that the reason it took me so long to recover, one of the factors was the fact that I was trying to fight off the fever? Yes. That's right. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, you'll appreciate this. So I was on service. This was in the last six months or so. So there was a boy who was a soccer player. He was hit in his hip with a soccer ball. He ended up having this septic thrombophlebitis. So he had basically a clot in his vein that then was it was uh, contaminated with bacteria, specifically MRSA, right? Methicillin-resistant staph artists. So we treated him with, with vancomycin. 
that bacteria we couldn't clear from his blood. He eventually had lung abscesses, he had brain abscesses, he had bone and joint abscesses, and every day, we, every two hours, we were rotating ibuprofen and Tylenol, your acetaminophen, you know, paracetamol in England. Mm -hmm. um, and, and every day he had spy, high spiky fevers, and we kept trying to keep his fever down. And every day for almost two weeks, he had bacteria in his bloodstream. So finally, I sat down with the parents, sat down with the child, sat down with the nurses, and said, let him have fever. Let him have his fever. And within a day and a half, the bacteria cleared from his bloodstream. Now, that, that may have happened anyway. I mean, that may have just been coincidence. But you certainly couldn't convince the parents of that. They thought we were geniuses. And I, I do think, you know, you have to remember, fever does work for you. I mean, th doesn't it make sense? I mean, well, you know, God didn't invent aspirin makers. You know, God invented fever, if you believe in a screen. I actually don't. But, you know, it, it, it did. Yeah, yeah, evolution. <laughs> either right. way, either way. <laughs> yeah, either way. That's interesting. And I guess also in old age, you see a lot of this over-medicating people, uh, overkill of medicine. Like, you see, like, you go onto an elderly care ward, for example, and, like, there's old people, and it's like the concern is not about enhancing their quality of life. It's more to do with, you know, making them live as long as possible. And as a result of that, they're on 50 medication. And the effect it's probably having on their quality of life probably far outweighs the benefit of elongating their life. So maybe just take them off all of those medication and just allow them to have a better quality of life, be it shorter. It's like we have this fixation on living for as long as possible as well, which I think maybe is the problem. I don't know if you have anything. No, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, I'm an older person, so I can say that. Although this does remind me of that movie Wild in the Streets, where nobody got to live. Oh, yeah. I'll stop talking then. My dog just opened the door, so let me shut the door. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Oh, no, it's all good. <laughs> Thank you. Man, our, our lives have been a lie. That's a good time. Say again? Our lives have been a lie. They actually have. I, I actually have a lot. So... so Oh yeah, and there is a so there is a psychic story in your book apparently. Would you like to tell us about that? The psychic. The psychic oh yeah, the psychic story. Yeah. yeah. The, um, <laughs> there was um, there was the, the point of that story was that uh, the courts are not a place to determine scientific truths. That was basically the, the point that scientific truths should be determined in a scientific venue, not in a courtroom. Um, but the the yeah, the story was that um, there was a psychic who had a headache. She went to Temple University School of Medicine, saw a neurologist there, and the neurologist, as part of his workup, did a CT scan of her head, after which she claimed to have lost her psychic powers, um, and therefore lost the source of revenue because she was actually worked for the police department, which is actually the most depressing part of the story. Um, so then what ended up happening was she, so she sued. She sued Temple University. She sued the neurologist because now she'd lost her psychic powers because they had put her in a CT scan. So that went to court, where she proceeded to win the initial verdict of $2.5 million. The verdict was, was the amount was less, but the verdict stood. So in order for the, the jury to come to that conclusion, they had to, one, believe that people had psychic powers to lose, two, that they could lose on their CT scan, and three, that the neurologist should have known better than to get a, a CT scan on a site. <laughs> like, this story is disturbing on many levels. <laughs> that, and, That's crazy. And what year are we talking about? Um, this was in the, I think in the 90s, in the 1990s. Wow. 1890s. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although I think if I was the defense lawyer, I would have argued that she should have seen it coming. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, actually, that's a good one. <laughs> the psychic after all. <laughs> it's even concerning that the police department had recruited her. 
they must have been a really bad police department <laughs> clutching its <laughs> yeah, that, and is that still the case in that so if you so for example if i say oh like after i went to the ct scan now i can hear voices in my head can i sue the doctor still is that is that still well, you're better off coming to America to do it. Here we have the bar much slower. See, there in England, you know, the loser pays. Here, you know, the loser doesn't pay. So, wow. yeah, <laughs> wow. I see. And and do you have uh, another book in the writing? Uh, I think you have another book in the writing that will come in the future. Yeah, I'm working on a book called The Learning Curve. The Learning um, Curve, right. Basically, the human cost behind modern, behind medical advances. But there's always a, a um, a cost to pay for breakthroughs. I think it's called the sub. The working subtitle is um, the human cost of medical breakthroughs, or something like that. But the, the learning curve is the title. And I mean, obviously, you're blowing our minds up each with each of your books. Do, do you know when? Do you have any idea when that that will be published? I haven't even tried to get a publisher. Oh, yet, really? So. <laughs> Can we get you on when it's published to talk okay. about it? Well, I'm happy oh, to. Do it. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor. Yeah, that's everything. We'll let you escape now. Thanks so much for your time. That was really enlightening. Thank you very much. Good luck. Amazing. Your career. You as well. Thank you very much. So, what did you think, man? Bro, it, it was right. First of all, mm-hmm. it it was it was a very interesting interview on many like from many different uh, aspects. Mm. Uh, one was that. I was at, so I thought so I did research on the questions I asked in advance so I was expecting what sort of answers I wanted to hear but turns out I was so for example regarding the regarding the vaccine thing like literally I challenge you guys watching this listening to this go like go look at like my source of news was guardian uh, obviously feel free to look wherever else you want it, like if you say, oh, how long it's gonna take? They've interviewed expert. They're experts, and it says two years. And what they don't tell you, here's what the things um, I I didn't. They don't tell you on the news because mm-hmm. basically their idea is they want to catch you. And they want to say, oh, coronavirus coming. They want to keep you. So on average, it takes about twenty years to develop a vaccine. Yeah, so that's it's what, crazy. So on average, it takes twenty twenty years, and minimum. Me, as as we had, as 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 we had, um, um, Professor Offit uh, estimating, it's, it will be around five years, and it seems reasonable. If the shortest recorded vaccine in the history has been four years, mm. this, this is like literally, I you don't find it anywhere on the news. I haven't. I did. I did. I did a lot of research. But it's crazy how much misinformation there is that is spread through media. I don't um, think just it's mis- they, I think. I think it's just. Do you think it's misinformation, or do you think they just want to put the headline on to get the money? I don't know. I mean, it, I think yeah, they, their intention is to put the headline on to get the money to get the views. But the yeah. side effect of that is the misinformation that they're yeah. spreading. Like, like the pref- he was talking about, um, like the MMR scandal that happened and anti-vax movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's misinformation, which is stemmed from people wanting to get views, and it it goes into so many more elements of the media than just yeah. Med- medicine and vaccination it's in every element of the news yeah like yeah we, we can get to other get elements later other. information 100 percent. yeah in other words also, right here's what we found today media is responsible for killing babies there we go mm, just gonna put it out true. there 
It's 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 actually tr- it's like it's it's semi funny, but it's like it's true. It's oh, terrifying. It's it terrifying. Is. It's what it is, man. The other thing that really shocked me was um, with regards to where is it now? I think I wrote it down somewhere. When he was talking, oh yeah, so he mentioned about um, within medicine as well, antibiotics and like you don't give the full course of medication. You just stop when you feel better. That's literally in contradiction to everything I've learned about antibiotics so far. You know, maybe I'm ignorant. Maybe I've been mishearing what the lecturers have said, but you're meant to take the full course. You're not meant to stop prematurely because otherwise bacteria can mutate and cause new infections like MRSA. Yeah. I thought the whole point is you don't stop giving the course of antibiotic, but he's come on and he said, you do the exact opposite. And, he- and that just goes to show like people lag so far behind scientific discovery and like society lags behind so far. We, they say change happens on a generational level. You, you, you can't make people who are set in their ways or set in their mentalities to change. Like it just doesn't happen. You need to wait for the new generation to come through. And with that change comes. And the same with the same with fever. Um, so in fever, when you go to hospital, they, they will give you ibuprofen. If you have mm. fever, they'll give you ibuprofen. That's like straight away. Just I, fever, ibuprofen. And you know, I had another friend of mine. He got glandular fever as well. He recovered within a couple of weeks. And his thing was he didn't go to a hospital. He stayed at mm. home. Like he, he, he was in fever for like he was in, he was suffering and in pain for like three or four days. But after mm-hmm. that, he, he, he fully recovered and it took me six months. I, I mm-hmm. actually, right. He, by the way, guys, anecdotal evidence though, obviously, but I mean, he, he's no, but. Um, so Professor Offit has looked at papers, obviously. He, the, the fact what he's saying is based on actual research. But mm-hmm. even looking at, looking at, looking at my, my own, my own, uh, viral disease, it, se- it seemed to be maybe that because I was taking ibuprofen constantly for like two months. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I just let, if I let the fever play out, I, I might have recovered much quicker. That's the thing though, man. Over-medicalization is real. We rely on it so much. Like we have, we're lucky to have all these resources, you know, all these medications that we can take, but society as a whole has become so reliant upon them that you forget that the human body is, you know, whether you believe in God or you believe in evolution, whatever the case is, the undisputable fact is that the human body is a masterpiece and it has so many natural measures in place to overcome things, but people become so reliant upon medication that they just to the, they just kind of ignored this, this element of the human body, you know, being able to do these things, having this potential. And it's like when people realize the potential that we have as human beings with diet, exercise, you know, measures, proactive measures that we can take or, or just resting and natural healing, getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. It, we overlook them so much and just try and see a pharmacological replacement for them. And it's 100%, a problem. 100%. Uh, yeah. One about sleep as well. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. for it. Go was, for it. Go for it. I, yeah, intru- I, just I say, interrupted you a lot last, so y- you can go ahead. This one. Go I didn't worry. notice, man. Honestly, yeah, I was just gonna say the the thing about sleeping as well. We want to talk about sleep in the future. It's so important. There's a book, yeah. Why We Sleep, by Matthew Walker, which I recommend to everyone, and it just kind of goes through how sleep and just going to sleep every night and getting eight hours of sleep is so important and so vital to our health and well-being. And it, not doing that. And becoming sleep deprived chronically 
can have so many detrimental effects on every part of the body, every body system, the mind, the, the heart, the lungs, just your joints, everything can be affected by poor sleep. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting topic yeah. and it's a good book. But society does not, it's not built around our well-being and us getting a good night's sleep. If you think about it, people sleep like four hours a night, five hours a night just to make it to work on time. And good employees are the ones who like get to work early in the morning and leave late at night. The ones who dedicate everything to the company, they're the ones who are like, you know, doing a good job and they're the hard workers. But in reality, it's the other way around, you know. If you get a good night's sleep, you'll be more productive, you'll be mentally sharper and you'll get a better day, a better day's work done at the end of the day. But I'm going a bit off topic. No, no, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, this is, this is, well, this will be one of the, uh, one of our future episodes, hopefully, if we can get, well, what's his name? We'll get Matthew Walker. <laughs> we'll get we'll, him to come We'll on. get him on. Well, of course, he'd love to come on. That's a little for Matthew Walker. <laughs> there we well, go. Professor shout out to, in, shout you know, out to Matthew Walker. Yeah, shout out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so here's one thing I wanted to say regarding uh, over-medication that you were talking about. I think it can, it can get uh, especially dangerous when it comes to... So, so for example, with physical health, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, we do have... Especially where, where I come from, <laughs> we do have people who do not like who are actually like who are afraid of doctor they won't go to a doctor under any circumstance really yeah that's how uh, that's how my uh, my granddad uh, lost his life uh, it was before i was born but basically uh, he had ki- he had kidney stone mm. and uh, back then uh, they couldn't use ultrasound uh, to to get rid of it to to, to make not not kidney stone sorry um uh, no, no, I, no, it was, I think... Bladder stone? Yeah, yeah. One of the, I, I'm not actually sure. I'll have to double check later. No, 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 I think it's kidney stone. Never mind. I think it's kidney stone, yeah. Yeah, so you, you kidney use ultrasound. St- Pardon? You can use, uh, you can, yeah, you, you can right, use you can ultrasound use for kidney stone, stone, can't you? Yeah, break them down with yeah. the vibrations. Yeah, yeah. So back then, we didn't have ultrasound. In Iran, anyways. Maybe they had it. Uh, so he had to do an actual surgery. But he would like he would never do like he would never go to even a, like he he hadn't gone to doctor his whole life and like it, when he got really bad he he agreed to doctor but he would so he refused to do surgery because he wor- he was worried like he might die but then he died because of not doing the surgery so I think really yeah yeah so I I think you know if I were to tell you okay always try to medicate yourself as opposed to Never medicate yourself. I, I'd, I'd be leaning on the medicate yourself side. Yeah, um, there's a balance. Yeah, no, no um, I mean, if you do the right medicine, assuming you do, if, assuming you don't use antibiotics for viral disease. As, but mm-hmm. I would be like, okay, if you're to do, e- if you're to be on either extreme, be on the, on the medic, on the, I'm always going to use medicine ex- extreme as opposed to. Do you so think? I'm never going to go to the doctor. Mm. But, I mean, if, if you're talking about the extremes, though. Yeah, um, yeah we're talking about extremes. Go on, you go. Yeah. Because, mm. yeah, we're talking about extremes. Don't, by, by the way, don't mm. self-medicate, obviously. You know, don't mm. do that. But if you're to, like, you get a small cold, you want, you want to go to the doctor, okay, go for it. But it's better than 
if you never go into that. Okay, we're just doing re- very extreme. But I think yeah. it can be especially dangerous, this whole medic over-medication, uh, with, uh, when people with, with mental problems, I think. Because, like, for example, we have antidepressants. And I think a That's lot a of... That's a big problem. Pardon? That's a very, very, very big topic, yeah. That is a I very big topic. But I podcast. think, essentially, I think, like, a lot of people, they want to say, okay, or, or with, like, drugs, or with recreational drugs. So they go, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling low, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling depressed. What can I put into my system to get me feeling good? The as prop, a, yeah. As when opposed when to, you, yeah. If you're pursuing any kind of chemical, chemical, you know, feel, feel better solution, like chemical high, talking more, more with regards to recreational drugs, uh, and, in this well, sense. Even when, when you're pursuing that kind of thing, you're just, obviously you're going to, every high has got to come down. And when you come down, you're just going to feel worse off and you're going to want more. I think, yeah, mental health and medication, it's kind of, it's a more difficult issue. It's a more difficult balance because especially today in today's society, a lot more people are on mental health medication. Um, but even with mental health medication, antidepressants, for example, that's not usually first line. Usually they recommend some degree of like cognitive behavioral therapy. So like you do get like you do the lifestyle interventions and approaches first. So if you go to a GP and you've got problems with, you know, poor, poor mental health, like hey, I'm feeling down and depressed, like lifestyle intervention comes first. So like trying to be proactive about it yeah. would come before medicated. But I think a lot of people, there's another problem with people getting, you know, they've got mates who take medication and they borrow it from them yeah. and self-medicate in that way. And that becomes a big problem as well. Uh, so yeah. Problems everywhere. Indeed. And, and I think also, you know, for example, other forms of addiction that are not technically chemical addiction, but in, in practice, they become, chemi- for example, sugar addiction, food addiction, mm-hmm. gaming addiction. They mm-hmm. become like you do that to get you that chemical high in your brain. Don't mean rush. Well, Oh yeah, the chemical, yeah, the chemical rush. No. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't get high on sugars, do you? You can. I mean, dopamine, the dopamine cycle, it feeds all addictive behavior. So yeah, the dopamine that's released in anticipation of a, something that's going to feel good. So like it could be anything, food, gaming, like you're saying, drugs. And it's the dopamine starts rising when you think about it and it keeps rising and it keeps rising and you chase that feeling of the dopamine getting, getting elevated and becoming raised and then you do whatever it is that you wanted to do and then after it's done inevitably you'll feel low again or you'll feel back to your baseline and when you're back there you want more dopamine and as you feed into that cycle the sensitivity to dopamine rises as well so if initially you'd have one biscuit and you'd feel satisfied after a month or a a year of compulsive eating biscuits you're going to want 50 you're going to want you know 10 20 30 40 50 biscuits before you get that get that yeah. satisfaction or that feeling you of, you know, up, uh, tolerance. Exactly. Yeah. And it can be to anything. It doesn't have to be, you know, drugs and hardcore, hardcore stuff like that. It can be to anything. Um, I forget why this is relevant. <laughs> this is, well, speaking of overkill, we're, yeah, <laughs> when, over- when you're, <laughs> when basic, when you're looking for medic, when you're looking for chemicals to, oh, to be fair, we, we, we made quite a bit of jump there from, chemicals yeah. to food addiction 
Well, there we go. That's that's why you guys. That's why you so guys listen like, to us. As that's unpredictable what... as you know, the future of coronavirus, which you know the professor said was very difficult to predict. Will it become endemic? Will it not? Oh yeah, that will one was an interesting help? one. Will it not? You know, who knows? He There's doesn't think of... it will become an endemic though. Mm. He he was on the side of it won't because it's it's not mutating fast enough. Mm. Yeah, I, that, that's no, though. I, I don't. I didn't. That's not what I took from what you said. Really? I thought maybe it was. I don't know. I guess. I guess it's open to Only inter- time will tell. Only time will tell. I will tell. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, I hope it doesn't. Well, we'll. we'll see. Oh, uh, oh, uh, which which other questions was there that I thought was interesting? Um, oh yeah, I was really interested with the microscope one. That so, if you have a virus, you you look at it under under the microscope, you can't really tell what it's gonna do once inside the body. Mm. You can't tell, you know, because like as an as a sort of outside outsider, that's interesting to me. That you know, so y- you make vaccines, you study mm. the but if you look at it in the apps outside the body. You have no idea what it's going to do once it's inside. Or wh- mm, I guess know, it, yeah. whether or not it will kill you or not, whether how dangerous it is, you can't tell by looking at it. It's weird for me. It's weird to me mm-hmm. that if you look at it. It's weird to me as well. It's weird to me as well when you, when you put it like that. There's a lot of uncertainty there. It is weird. But th- that's kind of comfort. Well, I mean, he, 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 he got us worry, worrying at the end that saying, oh, it is possible to engineer some virus, but it means like, for example, let's say, okay, this means since we can't tell what it does, then surely this, this ruins all conspiracies. We can't create a virus and tell it, we can't like, it's not like a computer code, like do that, like a virus that, then it, that, that eradicates all humanity, ding, ding. And then <laughs> the machine no, no, but that, <laughs> gives you the virus. And then <laughs> That's the thing, though. In a way, you can. In a way, you can really? because we already have. Think about it. We have the deadly viruses, like we have rabies, for example. Like right. you were saying, the thing is, that, and Ebola. We have the deadly viruses. The issue is transmission of those viruses. It's like it's. I mean, not an issue. The good thing about rabies, for example, is it's not airborne. So, like, you can't breathe in rabies and then just acquire it. So, bioterrorism and people who want to cause harm with viruses, all they need to do is change the mechanism of transmission of dangerous viruses. So they don't need to make anything new. They can take something that's already dangerous and just make it more dangerous by making it more transmissible. Mm, so like, right. I guess there is still that fear, but like you're saying, you know, it's not it's, like, it's yeah, not, you can't It's not make- easy. At least, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's one thing to take comfort in. This is true. There's another film. Uh, he mentioned contagion. There's one called quarantine as well. Um, mm. a horror film. I watched it when I was really young and it gave me nightmares for a long time. I think that's about some mutated form of rabies. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a lot of films about bioterrorism and changing up common viruses to make them more dangerous. Hopefully, no one gets any ideas. Wait, well, I mean, to be fair, if if you get idea by watching this podcast or listening not to like it, it, more likely we don't. Yeah, we take no responsibility, and also <laughs> you, we're just very good. It, it's a surprise you haven't come up with it early. You had to listen to this podcast to get the idea. You evil. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's impressive that, you know, we, we had that, you know, that much of an influence on someone. I would, I would take 
To be fair, I, I might take credit for it. Not gonna let you, <laughs> someone goes, my inspiration was little brain, big topics. I go, okay, you know what? <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least he's not a plagiarist. <laughs> oh man. I think that's a good note to kind of wrap things up on. Though. All right, we want to wrap so things up. Anything, wanna, anything else you want to add? And uh, well, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Well, yeah, we we'll have plenty of time to talk about other things mm. in future podcasts. Yeah. So thanks, thanks very much, guys, for listening. If you made it this far, which yeah. is unlikely, probably two of you right now who yeah. kind of sat down. We, we know the two. Oh, definitely. actually, okay. <laughs> Um, you, but okay, yeah. no, no. Let 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 Lots let's, more to come let's put future. something. If um, you've if you've stayed till this late, give us a put, put in the comment that I stayed. I stayed till the end, and then we'll we'll yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. We'll I don't know. We'll 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 do something nice for you. We'll we'll, sh- we'll shout your name out in the next podcast. There we go. We'll bake we'll bake you something as well, like a cookie. Yeah, cake. we'll bake you cookie in your name. Mm, so put in the comment on, section <laughs> if it's on Facebook. YouTube, ins- well, Instagram, you won't be on. So Facebook or YouTube. Um, if you've stayed till the end, write your Respect name down. You. We'll we'll give you You're a shout out. <laughs> okay, guys. So just to just to end our podcast, you, we have Twitter now. So little brains, big uh, little brains, big topics. I think we're uh, we're at big underscore topics. You can, you can, you, we have Twitter now. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. We have Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. We're on iTunes and Spotify. Make sure to follow us everywhere. everywhere. Share, comment, everything, guys. Everything. Please, if you, if you enjoyed what you saw, please make mm-hmm. sure to support us. Uh, we love you all. Yeah. Take care, guys. And, and the, let's show our yeah. ending sign of heart. Okay, that's it. (laughs) Let's end it.